All right, welcome everybody to a special edition of Moscow Mules and Op Slides. Uh, this is an OTPGH speaker series where we uh, interview some of the speakers for the upcoming conference on October 9th and, you know, just get a little more insight about uh, them and, you know, maybe some teasers about their talks. And then, uh, you know, we hang out for a little bit and then we'll go our separate ways. But uh, I'm one of your hosts, Kyle. I'm your other host, David. And our uh, special guest of the week is Kyle. Kyle, how are you doing? Doing well, sir. How are you doing today? Uh, doing. We're doing pretty good. Doing pretty good. It's nice to see people that aren't like from the area. I know. I know we get these, uh, you know, uh, through networking a lot. But you know, I, I met Quavo once at uh, uh, out in Vegas for DefCon Black Hat last year, and I'm pretty sure that he's, you know, just one of those guys that fun to hang around with. I, I enjoyed, you know, chatting with him out out wherever we were. I, I can't remember. It was a long, uh, long eight days for me out there, but. You know, not a regular face you get to see every now and then. So thanks, uh, thanks for showing up. Thank you, sir. So nice. Uh, yeah, I kind of gave a rundown of what we uh, are doing this, but this is really just, you know the speaker series. So you know, it's just we get to know a little bit more about you. So what what's your talk about? You know, at the kind of high level. <clears throat> so my talk is about vulnerabilities, uh, but I'm trying to make it into a practical sort of um, speak. So we can talk about vulnerabilities as far as, you know, Blue Keep, Meltdown Spectre, everything else like that. We could talk about CBSS scores being like 10. Oh my goodness, my hair is on fire. I got to do something about this. But I don't really think that people think about vulnerabilities in a practical way, at least one way that it reflects their environment. You know, just like every person is different, a lot of environments are also very different and not every vulnerability is going to affect the same uh, type of environment. So to kind of <clears throat> break it down a little bit, I decided I was going to compare, uh, are vulnerabilities like a game genie? Like that old uh, piece of hardware back in the 90s where you could plug it into a game console and then you could do all types of codes like infinite lives, live forever, infinite health, skip uh, boards, beat the boss with like one hit, stuff like that. Or should vulnerabilities be looked like Batman, as in like Bruce Wayne, the Dark Knight, and his utility belt in the sense of that he has different tools that are available for any situation. And he also prepares himself for any situation that comes across. Now, my talk is going to be talking about leaning more towards that we should view vulnerabilities from the mindset of Batman in that there are different tools that can affect different situations rather than a game genie, which can, which people erroneously think is one vulnerability and, oh my goodness, you know, I can own someone's network with just a few lines of computer code. And in fact, I'm going to reference an episode of Sherlock to make my point. Like old school Sherlock? There's only one Sherlock that I deal with is Benedict Cumberbatch. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Benedict Cumberbatch. I'll give you. I'll, I'll give you a hint. The episode, just because, if you want to watch the episode, the episode is called "The Reichenbach Fall." I'll have to look this up. So I don't know anything about that show. I only know that I think he's the guy from. Uh, oh man, see, I, I don't know. I'm so bad with like popular culture things that aren't. Um, you know, Doctor like, Strange. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, yeah, that's right. it. That's yeah. the thing where they, they ride the telephone booth, right? No. 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 Doctor Strange is the Marvel. <laughs> You're talking <laughs> Doctor Who. Yeah, <laughs> wrong doctor. <laughs> They're not the same person. Oh boy. 
Well, all I know is that people I think use his name as like a vocal warm up. Ben- Benedict Cumberbatch. Benedict I'm Cumberbatch. That five times fast. What a That's mouthful right. of marbles. <laughs> That's how I talk normally. So, <laughs> so well, like, what was what was your background uh, for for your vulnerability uh, like analysis work? Like, what do you what what did you used to do? What what uh, I don't know, what kind of things have you you looked at? Like, how how have you looked at these problems? Can you give us a like a, like a little bit of a short story TLDR or anything there? Okay, so um, I'm a graduate of Drexel University. And when I first started Drexel, I was a chemical engineering major. And I dropped out because I couldn't pay and because I had like a 1.6 ER, um, like a GPA or something like that. You know, it was like I had to pay to fail. That's how bad I was. Oh, man. <clears throat> But thankfully, I found out that if I were to um, work for the university full time, that I could take classes at night. So I just got like a middling job in a parking garage. And then uh, the guy who was there, who was residing in it, he decided he wanted to retire. But before he retired, he taught me how to be a DBA. And from being a DBA, became, I became a sysadmin. And from being a sysadmin, I was um, doing sysadmin work during the day and then going to school at night for um, computing technology, which is what I got my degree in. Not a so bad gig. That, what's that? Not a bad gig at all. <clears throat> Not everybody knows about this. You know, universities will pay you in, in like to make up like you get like crappy pay. But at the same time, as long as you're taking under 12 credits, you can get your degree and you get your undergrad. That's one way to do it if you feel like you can't really pay like the hundreds of thousands of dollars it's going to take um, to get through. So throughout a couple of machinations, changed jobs, and then I got a job with the uh, federal government. But I was still living in Philadelphia at the time, so I didn't know if I wanted to take the job with the government. So I ended up commuting eight hours every day from Philadelphia to Arlington, Virginia. Oh man! What? <laughs> so both of us, having lived in the area, we know how insane that sounds. Just to compute, uh, like even just from like Baltimore, right? Baltimore to Arlington, or even you know further south in like Columbia, or so. Basically, you went from you went you went around the Beltway up what whatever ninety five. There you go around, around Baltimore. I'll, I'll, I'll tell you how how I bus train. Yes, all of that. So I drove an hour to Perryville, Maryland. Uh huh. There, you take the Mark train or the Amtrak train, depending on what time you get there, and right. then you take that to Union Station, okay. and then you catch the red and orange lines to get to Boston to get to Arlington, where my building was. So, <clears throat> I would leave the house at five thirty, and I would get home at ten at night. Whew. <clears throat> and I did that every day for a year. Also, happened to be like <laughs> the second snowiest um, season in Philadelphia history, where we got like sixty-two inches of snow. So thankfully, my boss had let me uh, telework a couple times uh, when I when it was apparent that I really couldn't get down there. But yeah, I was thankful for that. I was thankful for the government giving me an opportunity to um, gain a position. And then I thought I was going to be a, I thought I was going to be a network admin there because that's what I was studying for. And they just put me into indicator management. From indicator management, I went into vulnerability management. And part of my vulnerability management background is working with something called the vulnerabilities equities process, mm-hmm. which um, if you guys are not aware of it, if you guys are aware of it, I'm not going to, okay, you're not aware of it. Okay, cool. Um, so the vulnerabilities equities process is a group of government agencies that come together to decide whether or not they want to release vulnerabilities to the public. So 
from there, I was pushed into a position within vulnerability management within the disclosure branch. And what I did there was I would work with other companies, um, private and with um, other government agencies, and we would figure out the best way to disclose vulnerabilities to the public. From there, I gained a bit more knowledge about vulnerabilities and specifically how they work. And one of the things that I've noticed is that vulnerabilities are, are, are talked about in so many different uh, ways and so many different frameworks. But what about a practical look at it? And um, on a side note, when we think about vulnerabilities, are we thinking about like the one, two, three lines of computer code that can pretty much own everything? Or are we talking about like a multi-layered defense, kind of like um, going back to video games, if you have like a level that's made up of like four different boss battles and all these boss battles are techniques. I mean, if you've ever played Mega Man, um, towards the end of Mega Man, then you have all of these characters and you pick up little weapons along the way that helps you to defeat these characters faster than if you tried to do it on your own. So I'm thinking that vulnerability should be looked at more in a practical way so that you can understand better, not just what they are, but also how to defend yourself, how to defend yourself. So you can point out, you know, okay, I've got this, I've got this area that's vulnerable. You know, this one might be like really high. I have like a CVSS of 9.9, .9, but it's on a smart TV that is nowhere near my network. So I shouldn't really be running around like a chicken with my head cut off um, just because of that. So just thinking more of a practical look, um, I'll also be talking about one other thing. I'll also be talking about how um, when we speak in InfoSec, we sometimes don't speak the same language. If I were to say IOC to you, yeah, indicator of compromise, or also the International Olympic Committee. If I say IP, then yeah, in, internet, pro, um, internet protocol. No, we're talking about intellectual property. So I think part of the reason why we have this, such difficulty is that we don't necessarily speak the same language. So I'll be uh, teasing that a little bit in my talk as well. That's, that's one of the things that we, uh, the very last thing, and I'm, I'm glad you kind of brought that up. That's, that's something that we've talked about at CERT for a long time is like the, the disparity. I don't know if disparity is the right word, but like how you don't have a common lexicon across um, malware and vulnerability and everyone, everyone tries to like speak the same thing. Like firmware doesn't mean firmware anymore. Sometimes it means, you know, the stuff that's running on a Xilinx chip. Sometimes it means a downloadable package from the vendor that you put on. And so when someone says, oh, you have a, you have a, you know, vulnerability in your firmware, it's not really, you know, is it, it just like you said, is it as bad as you think it is or not? And, and it, it doesn't just apply to like those two things. It's, it's pretty ubiquitous across the spectrum. And we're kind of, we're kind of, I, I think getting to a point where, somebody somewhere needs to address it even the malware like names of like groups yeah i mean we have so many different names for every vendor that has it oh yeah the spreadsheet you've seen that magic spreadsheet right on uh google someone's someone's google doc somewhere yeah i sure do it's all at least that's broken down by country i have it i have a t-shirt of about 30 different um malware names and sometimes I wonder where these people come up with these names, like Thrangry Cat. <laughs> <laughs> Thrangry? Thrangry Cat. 
I don't yeah, think I've heard this, of that one. It was the Cisco iOS vulnerability that they dubbed Thrangry Cat for whatever reason. I, I'm not throwing shade at the people who found the vulnerability because they pulled up a really good one with that. But at the same time, I sometimes wonder, you know, <clears throat> thinking about naming something. Naming is not easy. No, it's it's not. But like, you, you touched on a good point there. Where like, you where where does some of the stuff come from? And then like, okay, well. Uh, let's name every intrusion set a thing, but then that somehow gets tied to the actor and the tool or the tool starts to become the actor group or like the APT is now also the cover term from one group, but the tool set is something else. And then you just use everyone, everything's just starts like running together. And it's like, someone asks me, is this a thing? I'm like, I don't know. I, I, I don't know what this, I don't even know what that thing is really anymore because, yeah, because also- there's just such a, such a muck. <clears throat> and we also have to be careful what we give high priority to. I was there in the government when Meltdown Inspector first hit, and people were going nuts over it and thinking that this was the end of computing as we know it. Um, without throwing a lot of shade at Intel or any of the other companies that decided that um, security did not need to be considered when considering speed increases. Um, <clears throat> the bottom line is, is that as more information came out, um, it is a pretty gnarly vulnerability, but it's not really a practical one. No, you it's know, not. It, it's, it's not. not. Yeah, it, it reminds me of that XKCD, um, is that the comic? Um, where it's like comparing the CIA to the NSA and how they get information. NSA tries to get information and it's like a 128-bit cipher and okay, we're, we're, uh, we're done for, we can't break that. And then the CIA is like, here's a $5 wrench, go and beat it out of them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because- well, that's a good point. Yeah, I remember, I remember the, like, it, the, the, the samples started to come over to us and they're like, can you go find more of these out in like Virus Total or like go, go look internally and see if we can find more of these samples somewhere. And you're looking at them like, I don't know how anybody can execute this kind of thing anyway. Like, how do you know what operate? I mean, I don't know. You really have to be pretty surgical to figure out how to use that in a uh, uh, adversarial approach, I guess. But, you know, it's it's definitely possible given some of the stuff that's out there. Um, but a lot of the stuff that we ended up finding was just like, this is the, uh, it was it was like one file that had like some magic phrase in it that was like the test bed for like, you know, download the file, com- uh, compile it yourself, run it and see if you can, you know, go read some other section of memory, you know, uh, ahead of the clock or whatever it was. And that's, that's basically what we found was like a lot of those, those executables. But, um, yeah, I mean, what, is it more practical for me to use Spectre or for me to fish because fishing still works? Oh, fish, fishing always works. Doesn't it? I mean, like is fishing ever going to stop working? No, it's never not going to stop working. <laughs> That's how, can, I mean, name another way, like, mo, I mean, like, isn't that like the highest, like, most way yeah. that an actor gets into a network? Because I think it's, just, I think it's like percentage wise, I think it's at least like 75% is fishing, right? Uh, at least. The, when you watch the Sherlock episode, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Benedict is it on YouTube? Benedict. Also, Dr. Strange. See, music, music is my entire life. I played tuba in high school, and my teacher wanted to teach me how to play Dixieland music. And he said that I can make a lot of money doing that. 
But I decided not to do that because I thought that I would look like a very giant candy cane with like some of those Dixieland outfits. Not that I'm hating on them because they do, because um, <laughs> the big eight brass band out of New Orleans does a do a couple like really, really nice songs. I can, I'll probably like throw that uh, in another chat or a Q&A or whatever that's like really, really good. And I've always been a fan of like uh, the Phil Collins big band, but um, <clears throat> I've been playing bass for about um, over 20 years. And I first um, learned how to play bass by playing jazz. So, like some of my some of my best times is when you take your instrument and you go to these open mic nights within some cities where it's just a bunch of musicians who don't know each other. They come together. They um, they're given a song and you just play along and you just jam with it. I don't know how y'all do that. It's pretty. It, it's it's pretty easy once you hear how somebody plays. You know, it's like it's like learning how to talk to someone. It, it's like you're in you within the within the song. It's like you're all in a relationship with each other. It's like it, sometimes it could be just as easy as having a group conversation. Yep. Bill Collins' big band is that what you said it was earlier? Yes. I need to check that out. We were listening to some Genesis this weekend. I love me some Genesis. Yes, you you, you wouldn't realize it because it's not really. Um, advertised that much but the album is called a hot night in paris all right it goes through like a bunch of his songs like susudio and like some of those other 80s hits it's really nice that's classic i love phil collins yeah i have recorded three albums as part of a bilingual spanish gospel ministry for like the past 17 years this guy's just like you just keep coming up with things like oh yeah like you've you've lived at least twice as much as i have like there's see, see no this, doubt about like, yeah. you just got to get out of the house and you got to do stuff and you got to get involved i really haven't done that much when it comes down to it i mean i beg to differ in the last 30 minutes <laughs> i learned more about you than i do before <laughs> well, I, I, I will say the one thing that I will hang my hat on um, getting back to vulnerabilities is when Meltdown Inspector did hit and the government really wasn't given any information by any of the other vendors, um, I got to be quoted by Congress when they grilled Intel. And they said, yeah, um, an employee from DHS said it would have been nice to have that information before everything hit the fan. I feel like I heard that one. I, we might have been watching that. We were watching one that because Art was there, right? Because Art that was, was there, right? That, that was me. That, that <laughs> nice. was me telling them that. Well, that was an interesting story. Like, I mean, real quick before we, you know, we can go on for hours, but like coming kind of back to that, that was a very unique situation. I remember like hindsight's looking back on it and how like it emerged because someone saw an update on a like a Linux forum uh, for like the kernel. It's like in your in your time doing all this vulnerability management, has it really been something like that was like discovered in such a weird way where everybody was like WTF mate? Yeah, <clears throat> you. a lot of vulnerabilities are um, discovered by people stumbling across them or people just looking for them, trying to find them. As long as you have code, you're going to have vulnerabilities. So you just have to accept that. Um, what made this one so different was because no one, at least from the at least when I was at the government, um, no one that I knew of was aware of the depth of this issue. And even then, if I if I remember correctly, the way that it was the way that it was framed initially was that it was an update to a chipset, but that was it. It really didn't. Once the once the register or whomever um, got a hold of the information and then released it publicly. A lot of companies were scrambling because they weren't prepared 
for the backlash and for that sort of uncoordinated release. So there becomes another argument of like coordinated versus uncoordinated release. And then you start to think about, well, what's the damn, <clears throat> if someone has a vulnerability and a vendor is not being responsive to releasing the vulnerability, does that give the individual the right to release that vulnerability to everyone um, <clears throat> in order to force the vendor to create a patch? And you can have an argument on both sides. My personal viewpoint is that if you don't give the vendor enough of a chance to work it out and you don't try to build that relationship, then you can't, then you shouldn't really push it out there because now it is no longer a vendor uh, to researcher sort of uh, relationship. Now it's a vulnerability to everyone else. And oh my goodness, how are we going to defend ourselves against this type of situation? I'm not trying to be on the side of the vendor because there are some vendors that are absolutely ridiculous when it comes to blocking releases of vulnerabilities. We don't even need to go through the list of uh, vendors that have done things like just look in the past 90 days of what's happened. Um, <clears throat> but I'm also, but I also have had instances where researchers were pushing vulnerabilities only because they wanted to get their name out. And you know, researchers got to eat too. So I understand both sides. So the sweet spot is trying to get both sides to agree in something that they both can benefit from. The, the vendor can be benefit from responsible disclosure because at least they get a chance to control the narrative. The researcher can uh, benefit from responsible disclosure because, okay, now you have your name out there, now you have this vulnerability that you work with the vendor for with um, to fix it. So it, it's, it's not a perfect world, it, it's absolutely not, but I do believe that we're a lot better than we were like 10, 15 years ago. I'd agree. I mean, I think we've come leaps and bounds over the last few years. I mean, since I've been at CERT, you know, I think we've come leaps and bounds beyond that. I'm sorry, I got nothing. I'm good. I'm good here. <laughs> uh, I, I agree with everything everybody said. I was just trying to sit here and, and think also if like what the difference is between like holding a holding a vendor hostage with a, with a, a zero day, you know, where, you, where you're just kind of looking for some sort of like bug bounty payoff that they're not giving you or um maybe along the lines of like the, you know you have the vendor that doesn't respond and you're like well listen i got this thing and it's pretty bad what are you going to do about it i don't know do you start trying to peddle it on the black market something you know nah, where, so, where do you go like what so one, <laughs> one so they got eat one case that i worked on recently was a vulnerability that was the that was made available by brian krebs and he had decided that he was going to release his vulnerability to everyone because the vendor had not been responsive. Mm -hmm. So as a member of the government, I actually reached out to him and said, hey, you know, let's talk. Let's see what's going on here. And, you know, once he gave me the information, you know, I worked with you guys at CERT to kind of reach out to the vendor. And then once it was discovered that, you know, hey, the U.S. government and, and CERT, are really pushing for this vulnerability. Now all of a sudden, this vendor became more responsive, mm -hmm. and then it ended up being a coordinated disclosure, and it ended up being kind of like a happy ending. Unfortunately, uh, not everybody's as uh, you know tenacious <clears throat> as far as tracking yeah. that sort of thing down as you. So <laughs> that's, I think, one of the problems that we're going to end up running to, and you know, anytime that something like this happens. Yeah, I mean, there's a happy medium that's hard to hit, right? It's a hard to find, like, it's the meeting in those days, right? But setting, still holding, like, the vendor responsible to get it done. But knowing that, like, you know, mm -hmm. 
understanding Dina's world and understanding more of the vulnerability creation world, just from the outside, it's like, man, it's hard to find that happy medium because you don't really understand vendors like development life cycle, like that comes into play, but like, is this something critical enough? They need to like do a stop gap and like do this now and then, you know, continue on. Like it's, it, I don't have the answers and it seems like to be a you know continuous problem that will always exist. And I don't think, you know, like you said, it's, I think you said it right is that it's find that like sweet spot. And I think the way to find that sweet spot is to make yourself as neutral as possible. Um, <clears throat> don't really try to take sides. I, I know in some cases it's harder than others, but the, um, you want both sides to believe that you have transparent, um, that, that, that your, that your motives are transparent. You know, you want the vendor to believe that you, you want the vendor to believe that you're not really trying to work with the researcher, but ultimately you're trying to protect the people that the software affects. So one of the, one of the challenges um, within InfoSec is just that people acting like people looking out for each other and, you know, kind of taking care of each other. Uh, <clears throat> it's just such a very impersonal field. It's a very difficult field when it comes to, you know, relationships. But I think that it, once people start fostering those relationships, things get a little bit better. People are more willing to open up. People are more willing to talk if they feel like they can trust you. If they can trust you, then they know that, okay, he's not going to screw me over. Uh, she's not going to um, <clears throat> browbeat me over this. And at the end of the day, as long at the, the day, from my perspective, I was always about serving the people. So it didn't matter who was right or who was correct in, in, in any respect. All I wanted to make sure was is that the uh, that the public got the correct information, and they also got a way to alleviate this vulnerability to protect themselves against it. It didn't matter to me about like all the backroom politics or anything else like that. At the end of the day, I serve the people. We have to protect the people because those are the ones who are most affected by the decisions that happen here. I mean, that's a great way to end it right there. I mean, that's a it's a hell of a uh, icing on the cake, in my opinion. Um, Thank you. But, uh, you know, Cabo, I really appreciate you coming on. Um, it's been a great conversation. Don't, um, but, uh, yeah, I don't have anything else. David, do you? No, we're good. I'm, I'm good. Uh, thanks again for uh, participating. We got to have you on for a full yeah. one uh, because I, uh, we could, uh, like, your there's mind a, there's a lot here. Quality there's, content. There's, <laughs> I want to hear some, like, of his, like, old, uh, like the old good war stories, right? You know, everyone's, every good researcher that's been sitting around the government. <laughs> Uh, or has spent some time, has some good stories. So I, or I'd even like your days working at the right? university. Like I'm sure there's some good war stories from those days too. Oh, yeah, that's... yeah I, I knew about HVAC and vulnerabilities well before See, there I you go. understood there you go. about vulnerabilities. And I'll have to tell you guys one, one day about the time that I almost got fired from DHS. There you go. So you save that one. That's that's perfect. That's perfect. Well, we'll definitely have you on again for a full one. I'll get you on the books for like in probably December if you're available. But we'll get you on the books for sure. And sure, I, I would up. greatly appreciate that. Thank you. That'd be awesome. Yeah. Do you real quick? Uh, do you uh, uh, the, the Moscow Mules is is usually about having the drinks. Not always having the drinks. Is there something you usually sip on? I, I noticed you didn't take a drink of anything. You've not even a water. You got nothing there. No, um, yeah. but I do like the Ace Pineapple Ale. Ace That's Pineapple stuff. Ale. I don't know what that what? is. You've oh. never heard of Ace Pineapple Ale? No. <sighs> okay. What about me? <laughs> I like drinking mean, There you go. You can, really they, there's nothing wrong with the Pineapple Ale. I just don't know what it is. I'll have to yeah, go, I'll no, have to go do some research. Some. I don't drink much. 
Uh, That's fine. As you know, I don't drink much, but in the times that I do, I typically like either the Ace Pineapple Ale, Angry Orchard, or an Amaretto Sour. All right. Those are all quality. If you like Angry Orchard, you need to try from Pittsburgh Arsenal. Um, they're like a, they're wholehearted ciders, and they're like, there's some really good ciders. Also, I just looked up this Ace Pineapple Ale, and I'm pretty sure the first time I had this was in Vegas last year. I think it was actually out in Vegas. You guys probably had it together. <laughs> I, I might, I definitely have had this looking at the label. I, I, ha, I have looked a lot of places and nowhere, um, a lot of places have not had that. I originally started liking it out in Portland. Um, and I went to a Hawaiian place and they said, hey, we have pineapple ale. And I'm like, all right, let me try that. And I was just like, wow, this stuff is awesome. Where can I get this? There you go. You, you think you might like uh, an 1844? Absolutely. Maybe. Everyone, everyone. If you don't like beer or you don't typically drink beer and you like like cider, well, it's, it's very like well, it's it's yeah. heavy on the pineapple. Like this beer that out of Pittsburgh called from Hitchhiker. It's called 1844, which is like because I do a partnership with a place that makes rum in Pittsburgh. I think 1844 is a longitude of where like rum was originated. Don't don't quote don't quote me on that. Back check, but, Kyle. But it's 18.44. It's a lat or a long. I don't know which one it is, but it's basically a painkiller infused painkiller inspired drink but it's it tastes like pineapple it's like you know it's, it's light really good it's really good you might like that too i got i got a can for you that i'll save when i see you one day it'll be quality Sweet. nice little aged it'll be good Sweet. <laughs> I, I just i just remember being sad because um i have family who lives in the virgin islands and we went to um st croix and of course that's where the uh, captain morgan factory is so I brought back like about a dozen bottles of rum. Uh, again, I'm not a drinker, so just just having it. And then come to find out that the box was halfway destroyed. So like half of the bottles had leaked out. No. No. That's <laughs> Hopefully not in your luggage. No, I wish it were because that would have been a little bit easier to swallow. Because <laughs> you could bring it out into a yeah. container maybe. Well, thank you again. Um, but uh, like how we always like to close it out, uh, everybody stay thirsty. Cheers. Cheers.